time for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. We are still in the studio with John Guandolo. So glad to have him here. Again, his book, I urge you to get, Raising a Jihadi Generation, Understanding the Muslim Brotherhood Movement in America, which segues well into my question. You talked before the break about something that had just happened in South Dakota, and I hope you can tell our listeners that story. Yes. Um, so a couple weeks ago, um, there was a uh, Christian conference where uh, Sharam Hadian um, and a uh, former Iranian Muslim who's now a Christian pastor and Brandon House were speaking and a, a Muslim named Ihab Jaber showed up live uh, using his phone live on on Facebook uh, shooting video and he shot the Quran, a picture of the Quran he was holding for about 40 seconds and then uh, scanned the crowd and was walking around. He was stopped by police uh, because there's a no filming rule for security because uh, they were speaking truth about Islam, which is a capital crime in Islam, by the way, in Sharia. Um, so there are security concerns there. Well, he ends up uh, getting stopped. He lies and says his name is John Smith. And he just uh, didn't know, uh, you know, he played it off, went to his car and then sat in his car and brandished five different weapons, uh, including, uh, you know, uh, rifles and pistols. And uh, then has stated he had a lot of ammunition, stated that people inside should be terrified. And through other videos that he posted, and I went through his social media website uh, at the request of uh, uh, Brandon and others and see that he is a Sharia adherent Muslim who's very anti-police. He made specific threats against the people inside Sharam and Brannon. Uh, this was brought to the attention of law enforcement, including the several videos that uh, Jabber recorded and had on his Facebook site, threatening uh, the people inside. And law enforcement not only didn't take any action initially, uh, when he tried, when Brannon House tried to f- file a formal complaint through the, the police department, they refused to take his complaint. And um, as has been reported now by a state representative who was at the event, uh, who spoke with the attorney general of South Dakota, the attorney general refused to do anything. The prosecutor in Sioux Falls refused to do anything until this story, which has now gone international, has hit the major media. We put it out at Understanding the Threat, and it went out to other media. It went into European media, and Sioux Falls became the focal point. Here's a guy who's a jihadi getting ready to act right after we just had people killed in Fresno, California, people killed overseas in Paris again. Um, and yet the police and the prosecutors failed to act. Well, just um, Friday, they finally 12 days after this all happened because of the pressure after they said, we don't have anything to arrest them on. They finally went in, got the arrest warrant or the SWAT team went in and arrested him. And uh, not only uh, was he there and did they arrest him, but they found methamphetamine. Uh, so you have a guy who potentially was methed up with weapons saying, here's who I am, here's what I'm going to do. And nobody would, did anything until public pressure, not their duty, not their legal duty to act. Right. Now, if this were a white supremacist, uh, who was making these, that guy would have been locked up in five seconds. And this is, when I said earlier, this is a war on narratives. 
They control them. Actually, let me just close this by saying what the guy who led the Counterterrorism Technical Support Office at the Pentagon, the Irregular Warfare Section, said on national radio on Sean Hannity's program. The Muslim Brotherhood controls the national security decision-making process in this country as it relates to this issue, terrorism and Islamic matters. And they do it by shutting down all discussion of this issue. So when these things come in front of them, now they're not even arresting people who are threats to the community. That's how bad it is. I find it just staggering. And this is, I mentioned on the break, a very short segment, like a minute. But I do want to ask you uh, if we can quick get a summary on this. Uh, you know, you said in your book, the Muslim Brotherhood has dozens of jihadi training camps in the U.S. and has had them here since at least 1981. Okay. Do the authorities know about this? Are we? What, what can we do about this? Are we doing anything? Well, our experience, UTT, Understanding the Threats Experience, when we go around the country, first of all, we're the only organization training law enforcement about these matters and about how to proactively find terrorists, jihadis, and terrorists, the, the terrorist network, and we map it out for them in their area. Well, no, nobody else is doing that. Our experience is 100% of the police have never heard this information. In the uh, evidence from the Holy Land Foundation trial, which is on our website, Zayed El Noman's uh, speech to a group of Muslim brothers in Missouri in 1981, he lays out that they had training camps back then in the United States. So as a matter of evidence, 36 years ago, 35 years ago, they had training camps here and they still exist today. Okay, I know this mean guy in the boards is going to start turning the music on. I'm trying to talk, so we only have just a few seconds left. What is your website? And we're speaking of John Gwendolyn, your website, what people can go to to hear more about what you do. It's Understanding the Threat. We encourage you to sign up for the newsletter. Uh, find us on YouTube. Subscribe to Understanding the Threat's channel there. On Facebook, UTT underscore USA. Like us on Facebook and uh, learn about this threat and bring our training program to your sheriffs in your town. Thank you so very much, and thanks for tuning in. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and, if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit FirstLiberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's FirstLiberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to FirstLiberty.org now. Attention Ronald Reagan fans. What is the one item most sought after by Americans who love the Gipper? It's Young America's Foundation's Reagan Ranch Calendar. Young America's Foundation is the leading youth outreach organization dedicated to ensuring that increasing numbers of young Americans understand and are inspired by the ideas of individual freedom, a strong national defense, free enterprise, and traditional values. New audiences of young people across the country are introduced to conservative ideas through Young America's Foundation's programs, including the Reagan Ranch Program. 
program. The Reagan Ranch calendar contains spectacular images of the Gipper enjoying his beautiful 688-acre ranch, the Western White House. For a limited time, the calendar is free. Even shipping is free. To receive your beautiful Reagan Ranch calendar from Young America's Foundation, call 800-USA-1776 and mention the phrase Reagan Gift. Again, the number is 1-800-USA-1776 and Reagan Gift is the code. Learn more about Young America's Foundation at www.yaf.org. That's yaf.org. The National Center for Policy Analysis brings together the best and brightest minds to tackle the country's most difficult public policy problems in healthcare, taxes, retirement, education, energy, and now national security. The NCPA works to develop and promote private, free market alternatives to government regulation and control, solving problems by relying on the strength of competition and the private sector. As America's think tank, the NCPA wants to make sure you have access to simple, clear solutions to the issues that matter to you. Come get to know the NCPA at one of their events and join the conversation by following them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. To get policy solutions delivered straight to your inbox, sign up for the NCPA free email newsletter or subscribe to one of their policy blogs. To get involved with America's Think Tank, go online today to ncpa.org. The NCPA would love your support and you'll love being part of the solutions to America's challenges. So go to ncpa.org. That's ncpa.org. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. The Center for Security Policy, based in Washington, D.C., is a national leader focused on the organization, management, and direction of public policy coalitions to promote U.S. national security. The Center is a special forces in the war of ideas dedicated to identifying opportunities and challenges likely to affect American security and acting promptly to ensure that they are the subject of focused national examination and effective action. The Center enlists support from executive branch officials, key legislators, and other public policy organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. You know, we have a great guest in studio, and I implored him on the break. Can you stay a little longer? Which uh, he could, and I'm really glad about that. Again, we're speaking with John Guandolo tonight, and I, you did a very rushed, at the end of the last segment, description of the products you have out there. So I want to give you a chance to really describe them, the videos, I think. Tell our listeners what you have. And then I want to go back, and I want you to explain to me why in the United States of America we actually have jihadi training camps that we have not just removed. But first, just just so people know how to find you and what your stuff is. Well, again, it's understandingthethreat.com is the website, uh, Twitter, UTT underscore USA. Uh, We have a YouTube channel, Understanding the Threat, and uh, Facebook, Understanding the Threat. And um, the big products are we have uh, this book, we have uh, Muslim Mafia, which uh, is a story about our vice president for Understanding the Threat, Chris Gobbitz, who went undercover at the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE. We we call it Hamas doing business as CARE uh, back in 2008, and the book Muslim Mafia was written about that. And so when CARE tries to say they're not Hamas, uh, it's pretty easy for him to say, well, actually, I work there, and I know exactly who you are. Uh, then we have uh, DVDs. We have the uh, 
the outlawed brief, Understand the Threat to America, which lays out in about an hour and a half the evidence, the key evidence at uh, the Holy Land Foundation trial, and a, a new series, uh, Understanding the Threat. Uh, episode one has been released. It call, it's called What's Going On? And it is a, about an hour and 20-minute summary, the, the totality of the threat. So not just the Muslim Brotherhood threat, the broader Islamic threat, uh, but also tied into the hard left Marxist movement here in the United States and how they're working together. Um, I got to jump in. Jihadists in America working with the hard left Marxist yes. movement. Okay, wh- why would they philosophically like each other? Uh, because both want to see the destruction of the United States. Thank you very much. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and it, it's, it's um, we can go, like we can do a 10-minute segment or we could do a 10-day segment on that. Uh, at the national international level, how they're working together, but they're working very closely together. Um, so those are the products. We have several more coming out. We have a new one coming out um, on Sharia is the, is going to be the next episode. And then we're going to have an episode that's already been, been filmed on the founding principles because at understanding the threat, we believe it's not just enough to know what you're fighting against, but what you're fighting for. Uh, and then a number of, of others coming out. And then finally, we have a new book coming out, hopefully in about, Five weeks now, I think we're in the final stage, is called It's All About Sharia, because everything that we see, if you understand what Sharia is and what it requires, it when you understand the world through there, from the jihadis' uh, lens, all of what we're witnessing makes sense. Okay, one thing you said in your book that I want I meant to mention, so John Guandolo, to whom we're speaking tonight, actually does training for the federal, the military, federal officers, security forces, police departments, and there was just thing, something he shared. It was actually his note, but it was um, just I thought really helpful to understand. So he, in 2011, June of June of 2011, made a presentation at the headquarters of the Marine Corps in their auditorium for about 115 law enforcement and national security professionals. These are people who already work at the FBI, CIA, NSA, DIA, DHS a presentation about the threat of radical Islam in America, the threat of the Mo- the Muslim Brotherhood in America. And the program is called Understanding the Threat to America and focus on the Mother- uh, Muslim Brotherhood's movement here. So they do this program, and before lunch on the third day, a gentleman stood up and in front of over 100 of his colleagues said, I have been in the FBI for over 14 years. I'm a supervisor at FBI headquarters in the counterterrorism division. Okay, supervisor in the counterterrorism division. I've never heard any of the information you all have put out here. Honestly, folks, it's like it, it just couldn't be more valuable. And I think that the if the American left and the media uh, want to just you know put their fingers in their ears and say la la la, I don't want to hear it. They're not keeping us safe. And this, so that which segues well into the other thing I wanted to have you go back to, which is there are really jihadi training camps on the ground in America. You know, where are they? What exactly are they training people to do? And who is on top of this? Okay. So if I could segue from what you just said, that's a great story. The end of that story is after that FBI supervisor said that. I asked the whole audience, how many yeah. of you knew this information before you came in here two days ago, three days ago, and nobody raised their hands? Now, these are people at CIA, FBI, DHS, all the organizations you just mentioned, including state and local law enforcement. That's what I mean when I say this is a war of information. The same hard left 
anti-American organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center, the ACLU, Hamas doing business as Kara Jihadi, working together with the media everywhere UTT goes, the media, the SPLC, the ACLU try to shut us down. Why? Because they know we're the only ones putting our finger and directly identifying the threat by name in every city we go to. And because of that, we right now, as we're sitting here in the studio, investigations have been opened up in several states that we are working with uh, based on directly based on our training on terrorists that they otherwise not only wouldn't have opened up, they had no idea that these organizations were in their county, in their state. That's the value of this. So to talk about these training camps is important, but they wouldn't even understand any of this if they didn't have this training because it's all been shut down at the federal level. We've talked about this many times on this show, how I think it was in 2011 under President Obama where he actually had removed, at the behest of CARE and other terrorists, had removed from the training manuals any reference to Islam, jihad, anything that would cause people to be to connect uh, bad actors to Islam. And so the whole the whole training of our national security forces, our military, they just took out all references to the main source of terrorism in the world. I assume at the behest of CARE. I mean, CARE was in the middle of that. I think, right? Right. But, yeah. And- CARE, the Islamic Society of North America, Muslim Public Affairs Council, all Muslim Brotherhood organizations. So this is what I'm talking about. When we talk about controlling the narrative, information war, when they can stop the federal government at the White House, FBI, DHS level from even speaking and using the terms that terrorists, if you will, jihadis use to define themselves, that ensures we will never be able to target the bad guys and they will actually win. But this is that's it. And that's how they're fighting this war. They're shutting the discussion down, and they are stopping police from actually putting handcuffs on real terrorists because now everybody's so healed back and afraid to act because you just nailed it. It offends Muslims. So when people say they'll never impose Sharia here because we have the U.S. law here and all that, that is the imposition of the Islamic law of slander without ever going into a court. The Islamic law of slander says it is a capital crime to say anything about Islam that offends a Muslim that he would, quote, dislike. That's how they do it. This is how bad it is. Now, to people out there that have no understanding of this, this may sound uh, over the top. But when you understand this, they are crushing us right now. And in fact, I would argue and we do argue they're going to win this war here in the United States if we don't turn this around immediately. Exactly. And I think that was part of it actually hurt Hillary Clinton in the last election cycle was continuing to take the tact. I think she maybe finally said radical Islam once, but continuing to take the tact that President Obama took, which was he wanted to call it countering violent extremism. He would never acknowledge that the problem with terrorism is linked directly to Islamic teaching and did not want to say the words radical Islam, and Hillary Clinton didn't either. And I think, honestly, is one of the refreshing things about Donald Trump. Love him or don't love him, you know, <laughs> he actually said what had to be said. And people thought, I'm so refreshed by the truth. I want to mention one other thing that um, I noticed about your book. So we've had in the show before Andrew McCarthy, who's just, you know, a 
fabulous writer and thinker, and he was the prosecutor of the Blind Shake. Uh, he's now at National Review. He writes brilliantly. So he, in this book I'm describing to you, Raising a Jihadi, wrote the foreword. And one thing, this is a good thing to close on, but he talked about the idea you have to be able to say, first of all, that he would write a foreword to this book is another good reason to buy it because it's a signal, it's, it's such high quality. But um, he also used the expression Islamic supremacist, Islamic supremacist. Another great word to say in some way or other, you know, you have to recognize Islam is just not another religion like every other one. The core idea of Islam is the supremacy over everybody else. Right. And look, 100 percent of Islamic books, uh, textbooks for junior high, high school, the highest uh, authorities in Islam all define Islam as a complete way of life governed by Sharia. 100% of all published Sharia on the planet obliges, mandates jihad until the entire world is under Islamic rule. That's it. That is it. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Thank you, John Guandola, for joining us today. And come back after our break. We will be joined by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, changing subjects entirely to the great state of Texas. Don't go away. There's a lot of talk today among media, in academia, in our culture, about everything that is supposedly wrong with America. Political correctness tries to dictate that we must stop thinking that America is exceptional. America's bravest have our back in the air, at sea, and on land. But who has America's back in the culture? In schools, on cable television, in newspapers? It's time to end the greatest prejudice on earth, anti-Americanism. And who makes the case for America? Flag does. Flag is the foundation for liberty and American greatness. Flag has America's back on the cultural battlefield. Flag is a nonprofit battle tank working to change the cultural and media narrative about America. If you think it's time to stand up for America, join the Foundation for Liberty and American Greatness. Your support of Flag is an investment in the America your children will inherit. Visit their website at flagusa.org and consider donating. All donations are 100% tax deductible. That's flagusa.org. Texans have a long tradition of independence, and we don't like being told what to do, especially by liberal bureaucrats 1,000 miles away. That's why for 30 years, the Dallas-based Institute for Policy Innovation has fought Washington's efforts to take more of your money and freedom. IPI works every day to keep taxes low and freedom high, to promote free market health care, expand energy security, protect intellectual property, and combat onerous regulations that destroy American jobs. Politicians often talk smaller government, but then vote for more of it. By contrast, IPI has never veered from its mission to defend the Constitution and fight for freedom. If you want to be informed about free market policies and solutions, go to IPI's website and sign up. All of their information is free for sharing. Help IPI restore liberty and economic growth. Go to IPI.org today. That's IPI.org. One more time, go to IPI.org today. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. 
We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country, to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility when politicians propose solutions to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues. But even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are tens of thousands of Heritage members and supporters in North Texas alone. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates on the fight for America from Heritage President Jim DeMint, plus exclusive invitations to conservative events right here in Dallas or wherever you are in America. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. And I believe we are now joined on the line by Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Hello, sir. Hey, Debbie. How are you? I'm just fine. Uh, thanks very much. I'm so glad you could join us tonight. You know, um, I'm just so glad. Okay. Um, I want to just turn because we've been we've been off in the world in this show tonight on um, terrorist jihadi training camps around the country and all sorts of things related to radical Islam, but I wanted to get you on the show for the last several weeks to get an update on how we're doing in Texas. Uh, and the, you know, Texas, I'm sure our listeners know, our legislature meets only for six months, once every other year, keeping Texans safe from too many laws. But um, we are in session right now, and we are speaking to the head of the Senate, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. So just overall, how's your session going? Uh, well, the Senate, uh, Debbie, uh, thanks for having me on. The, the Senate's having a great session. We listed uh, 30 priority bills. Uh, we have several thousand bills filed. Uh, you know, only maybe uh, a third actually get a hearing. Many are duplicates as well, and some just don't have support. Uh, and the first 30, one through 30, are reserved numbers for me as lieutenant governor that indicates my priority of the bills we want to have passed. And of those 30, uh, we've already passed 29. In fact, the 29th was out about three weeks ago in record time, uh, despite the fact that some of the print media said some of these bills will never pass. But we've moved them all out of the Senate. Some highlights of those bills would be uh, slowing down the increase in property taxes for homeowners and businesses 
that over the next 20 years would save the average homeowner uh, about $20,000 because we want to slow down the growth of government growing. Our school choice bill we passed out of the Senate. Our Texas Privacy Act so that boys and girls aren't showering together in high school and men can't go into ladies' rooms. Uh, bills dealing with law enforcement because of the, the massacre, the terrible day in on July 7th last year in Dallas. Uh, we're providing in the Senate and our budget uh, a bulletproof vest. The cost is about $25 million statewide. I want a bulletproof vest for all of our 60,000 officers, patrol officers, uh, to have a vest that can handle a rifle round. They don't have those, or very few have those now. Uh, Pro-life bills, uh, pro-business bills, a freezing uh, tuition costs for the next two years because college costs are skyrocketing, uh, uh, and, and a number of other bills. But those are some of the highlights. Keeping our budgets to no growing our, our government in Texas no more than inflation ties population. So a very conservative agenda. It's all out of the House. So now it's up to the it's up to the House to pass as many of those bills as uh, I hope they will pass. I'd love to see all of them pass. Whether it's a Senate bill or a House bill doesn't make a difference. It's the policy that I'm concerned about. And just I'll, I'll wrap with this very quickly so you can get the next question in. Of our 30 priority bills, uh, I said this in an interview early in January, and the media scoffed at this, but the University of Texas, uh, they did a, a check of, on, on their polling of all of my 30 priorities because I said that every one of our priorities is, is supported by between, depending on the bill, 65 and 85 percent of Republicans. And none of our bills is supported by less than 50 percent of Democrats. You know, a Democrat, you know, E-Verify included, photo voter ID we passed out. A Democrat, voters, maybe not their elected officials, but voters, you know, they support those issues 50 percent or more. And in issues like the Texas Privacy Act, it's 70 percent, photo voter ID, close to 70 percent. So these bills are good common sense policy that the people of Texas of both parties want. Gee, it sounds like the elected Democrats didn't get the word out to their voters. They, they shouldn't be supporting. No, I'm kidding. I love hearing that, actually. And honestly, when some ideas, they are so common sense, there really is not a reason there ha- should have to be a partisan divide in all of them. Well, I want to hit two things. One was yeah. uh, I noticed that you had issued a little bit of a blast to Dallas County because they had a resolution welcoming undocumented immigrants. And talking about your elected officials not reflecting the values of your voters, the idea in Dallas County that they had a happy resolution saying we sure love all these undocumented. So I just want to thank you for your for rebuking that uh, resolution and just ask you to share your thoughts about it. Well, you know, they, they said, and that was voted four to one. Four Democrats voted for it. One Republican voted against it um, on the Dallas County court. Uh, I remember, and this has been some time ago because we passed this bill about two months ago. It's been in the House for a while, but we do move quicker in the Senate. Um, it's my pace. I just like to keep a pace of really pushing, pushing, pushing because it's a short session, get things done. Uh, and these bills will now start uh, moving in the, in the House, I believe. But when we passed that, at the same time, they, they passed this resolution while we were hearing anti-sanctuary city bills. And they, they said in their release that having a sanctuary city or a county like Dallas County makes it safer. Uh, that's just nonsense, Debbie. Let me give you and your listeners some stats that I'm not reading from a paper. I know these uh, – I don't have any notes in front of me. I know these so well because I've studied them and, and talked about them. But from June of 2011 till January of this year, uh, we arrested in Texas, not America, just in Texas – over 212,000 criminal aliens in Texas. We charged them with 566,000 crimes, including uh, over 6,000 sexual assaults, over 1,000 murders, nearly 500 kidnappings, 67,000 drug offenses. 
when when I hear Democrats, and it's the Democrats who are pushing for these sanctuary city policies nationally and locally, statewide, uh, they are ignorant, quite frankly, of the data. Because no one in their right mind in office would suggest that sanctuary cities make the public safe, safer when you actually look at the crime stats. And, uh, and of those, again, 566,000 crimes. Can you imagine, Debbie, if we were to wipe off the map by getting rid of these criminal aliens that are here, uh, mo- many of them, more than two-thirds here illegally. Uh, the others are here legally, but they're committing crimes. But uh, can you imagine wiping out almost 600,000 crimes off of our court dockets and out of our jail cells and how many fewer victims there would be? Okay. And, what was so the time period again, uh, that time period you said where was, we had— that was. Yeah, from June of 2011 until January of this year, 212,000 criminal aliens arrested here in Texas alone in our 254 counties, and we charged them with over 566,000 crimes. Okay, I'm going to memorize that same statistic. I am blown away. I was mentioning before— And make a a quick note here, over 6,000 sexual assaults, over 1,000 murders, 7,000 drug— drug offenses, 500 kidnappings, yep. nearly 500. I'm, I'm rounding off the, the numbers. But it's and, – and, and, our, and our citizens are at risk. One of the reasons, Debbie, that, that I did so well with Hispanic voters in my last election, uh, we, you know, I got nearly 50 percent of the Hispanic vote, which shocked the Democrats, particularly since I had a Democrat opponent, a female Democrat opponent, um, is because Hispanic Texans, Mexican-Americans, they want a secure border. They want the criminals kept out. The crime is in their neighborhoods in many cases. Um, they, these are common-sense laws. Now, with that, uh, the other reason I attracted a big uh, support of Hispanic voters, and, and obviously we won by 20 points, so uh, uh, support by all voters, was because with that I, I said that no one should have to die to come to America. No one should have to swim across the river or be raped as a woman as part of the bounty for the drug cartels let her come to America. Our country, and I hope President Trump, and I think he can finally get this done, will, we need legal immigration reform so people can come to America and not live in the shadows, wanting to fit in with our society, not, you know, not hiding in the shadows. And we need to control how many people come across the border, not the drug cartels. And right now the drug, car- the drug cartels control the border. They decide who comes across the border. And with the, the, most of the people, the vast, vast majority are coming here just for a better job and a better life, but mixed in with them are all these criminals, all of these criminals. And so that's why the wall of support is important. And, and when I say the wall, it's part real wall, brick and mortar or cement or whatever it's made out of, but also natural barriers, um, uh, technology, cameras. I mean it's not – in my view, I don't see a wall for 1,200 miles across the Texas border, but we need walls in certain areas where they're effective, particularly in our major crossings. We don't need them out in no man's land where we can spot from a helicopter people from miles away trying to cross the border, and, and the underbrush is so difficult no one crosses there. But that's why we need it, because when we catch these criminals and we deport them, right now it's easy for them to come right back. And how many times have you seen, Debbie, in the news, such and such was arrested the fourth time they crossed the border? Or it's So that's why we need it. This isn't just rhetoric by Trump uh, for a bumper sticker cliche. This is real. Could not agree more. In fact, that's where we're going to go to the next segment. And now you need to go at the end of this one. We're going to go to that. The next segment is the battle continues over sanctuary cities. We have a little less than one minute left. We're speaking with Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, good friend, great leader in the Texas Senate. Last question, and it's like 30 seconds, but 
Is the budget going to be, I, I understand you appointed your delegates to the budget conference coming up, but uh, are you anywhere close with the House, or is that going to be a big project? Well, the, the budgets are actually close now in dollar amount. They were very high. They've cut to come down to, to our, our numbers. You know, the controller tells us how much we have to spend based on estimated revenue over the next two years. So uh, that we're fairly close. It's how we fund it. The House wants to take $2.5 billion out of the rainy day fund for ongoing expenses, programs, and people. That's not what that fund is for. We will not spend rainy day fund in the Senate. So uh, I'm hopeful we can agree to a budget on how we fund it by the end of May. Otherwise, we'll be in a special session. But rainy day fund, remember, is it's our, it's our base savings account. Yep. It's meant to either pay down debt for disaster times, but mostly it's for Debbie when we have agreed to pay for something years out in advance. Because remember, this budget we're passing this year will yep. appropriate money for the next two and a half years. Got to jump in. Ten seconds left. The rainy day, yeah, we need the rainy day fund to pay those bills when we don't have it. We do not prop up our budget moving forward with rainy day funds. Dan Patrick, we love you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate On August 2nd, 2006, Debbie Lee was notified that her son, Mark Allen Lee, had been killed becoming the first Navy SEAL to lose his life in Iraq. She had no choice about the news that was given to her, but she did have a choice how she responded. In response to her son's amazing last letter, she founded America's Mighty Warriors to honor the sacrifices of our troops, the fallen, and their families by providing programs that improve quality of life, resiliency, and recovery. Whether America's Mighty Warriors is hosting retreats for families of the fallen, helping heroes heal who are struggling with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, providing relaxation at the Heroes Hope Home, stepping in when an injustice is committed, or doing random acts of kindness. As Mark mentioned in his letter, they know the price of freedom and who pays it. Our troops and families of the fallen need your support. Visit americasmightywarriors.org today to learn more. That's americasmightywarriors.org. Hi, this is Debbie George Addis. On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country, to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility when politicians propose solutions to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues. But even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. On August 2nd, 2006, Debbie Lee was notified that her son Mark Allen Lee had been killed, becoming the first Navy SEAL to lose his life in Iraq. She had no choice about the news that was given to her, but she did have a choice how she responded. In response to her son's amazing last letter, she founded America's Mighty Warriors to honor the sacrifices of our troops, the fallen, and their families by providing programs that improve quality of life, resiliency, and recovery. Whether America's Mighty Warriors is hosting retreats for families of the fallen, helping heroes heal who are struggling with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, providing relaxation at the Heroes Hope Home, stepping in when an injustice is committed, or doing random acts of kindness. As Mark mentioned in his letter, they know the price of freedom 
and who pays it. Our troops and families of the fallen need your support. Visit americasmightywarriors.org today to learn more. That's americasmightywarriors.org. There's a lot of talk today among media, in academia, in our culture, about everything that is supposedly wrong with America. Political correctness tries to dictate that we must stop thinking that America is exceptional. America's bravest have our back in the air, at sea, and on land. But who has America's back in the culture? In schools, on cable television, in newspapers? It's time to end the greatest prejudice on earth, anti-Americanism. And who makes the case for America? Flag does. Flag is the foundation for liberty and American greatness. Flag has America's back on the cultural battlefield. Flag is a nonprofit battle tank working to change the cultural and media narrative about America. If you think it's time to stand up for America, join the Foundation for Liberty and American Greatness. Your support of Flag is an investment in the America your children will inherit. Visit their website at flagusa.org and consider donating. All donations are 100% tax deductible. That's flagusa.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is always the fastest and funnest two hours of my week. And I want to quickly thank our sponsor, without whom the show would not be possible. Um, GC Works is a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. I also want to thank our two guests tonight. Loved having John Guandolo in studio and loved talking with Texas State Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Good friend. And um, and he's a former radio guy. He can just, uh, he's, he's just so much fun to talk to. So anyway, but in this last segment, uh, we jumbled things up a bunch, but I wanted to hit a little bit tonight and just talk about where we are in the sanctuary city thing. Especially because, um, as if you've been listening just prior to this, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was on and commenting on, you know, the fallacy that the left comes up with that, you know, sanctuary cities, you can't crack down on them because that'll make life more dangerous. And the specific example, I think I was telling Kirby, my Right View Roundtable friend here, on a, before we got started, there was some host making the argument on a news show that, you know, suppose you are a woman who is a victim of domestic violence and but you're afraid to call the police because your husband is an illegal alien and you're afraid if you call and he gets arrested, then he might be deported. So what they're arguing really is you have to just let people stay in this country who are committing crimes because um, otherwise somebody else might get hurt. I mean, it's it totally turned on its head. It's the, the fault of the domestic violence abuser is is he is the fault he is the problem it is not the problem of the people who want law and order and as statistics that Jan Patrick just shared with us you know the crime that occurs in low income communities at the hands of illegal aliens really hurts the poorest lowest income americans they're the victims you know, Debbie, one of the things that you probably learned in law school is bad cases make bad law. But I speak a lot on ethics, and this is really what we're talking about, the ethics and moral policy. And that is convoluted, bizarre cases do not establish a moral principle. And so we recognize that there were always going to be a couple of those difficult ones. And I'm sure that they sat around a table and tried to think of the most uh, yeah. difficult situation of a woman who is uh, being abused and domestic abuse, and so we don't want him to be deported. Well, but we do want to save her life. So even the best example they could come up with isn't a very good one. 
But that's not what we're talking about. In most cases, we're talking about serial rapists, uh, ba- gangbangers, all sorts of individuals who have been engaged in all sorts of crimes, which we would incarcerate individuals in this country if they were citizens. But because we're not, we try to deport them, but they come back again and they actually gravitate to those cities that are sanctuary cities. And as Dan Patrick mentioned, just for the state of Texas, and I've looked at it nationally, uh, it actually increases crime. So, again, the question should simply be, do you want a policy that puts more people at risk and increases more crime, or do you want a policy that decreases the crime rate? And I think everybody, when they think about it that way, comes to a very obvious answer. Could not agree more. And it's interesting, this parallel to what we're talking about compared with something we talked about in the first hour Speaking truth about something is refreshing to people. When Donald Trump was willing to say, we actually have to have a secure border, and we have to know who's coming, and we have to crack down on illegal aliens, especially those who have committed crimes, these were unspeakably, politically incorrect, unbearable things for the left to hear. But a lot of Americans said, yeah, yeah, I'm with him. And it's the same thing with respect to terrorism. This notion that we can't identify the real problem, we can't link terrorism to Islam, even though they are interwoven. And finally, Donald Trump came along and said, actually, we have a problem with Islam. We have a problem with terrorism. And so he recognized the problem, spoke it, and then tried to carry it forth in policies. And the left just kind of wants to have the, if we don't, say the problem will go away and not be real attitude. And again, a lot of this is emotionally driven. And that is, again, give me a situation, as we just talked about a minute ago, of a woman that is being abused, but she doesn't want her husband deported back to Mexico. Well, that plays on your heartstrings, but you have to back off a little bit and just think about what makes some sense. And one of the things I'm going to say, Debbie, right now is we're at a tipping point. There comes a point in time where if you have so many individuals disobey the law, then the law is simply not enforced. Uh, Individuals driving around right now listening to this program might actually be exceeding the speed limit. But, you know, most of them don't get pulled over because the police recognize that sometimes people can speed 5 or 10 miles over the speed limit. We just can't go after everybody, so we stopped enforcing some of the speed limits. By uh, analogy, if we have more and more of these cities begin to have sanctuary cities, and then we have even California wanting to be a sanctuary state, eventually we won't have any rule of law because we'll eventually throw up our hands and say there is nothing we can do to deal with the immigration problem, and the United States will cease to be a country in the sense of a country that protects its borders. So this is why I think this is an important issue. So whether at the state level which is what Texas is doing right now, we heard from Dan Patrick, or at the national level, what the Attorney General wants to do, Homeland Security and President Trump, I I think either you move it one way or the other, because if you allow more and more states and cities to become sanctuary cities or states, it's already over at that point. I love that point. I love all those points, Kirby. And and additionally, as you say, you lose the idea of law. It's just it really isn't law anymore. But then really, what's the idea of citizenship? If we have... A category that citizenship and to be a citizen, you have to have met some requirements. You either are born here or you in some way acquire legal citizenship. But the next thing that happens when you have a growing legal immigrant population and we don't crack down on them and they live in the cities and we don't ever 
question that. At some point, you're going to have the left saying, well, gee, they're working here. They're paying taxes. They're, you know, they're maybe they're paying sales tax at least. They should be able to vote. I mean, you pretty soon lose the whole notion of a citizen and a not citizen. And, and also you lose track of who's here. You don't even know who's in your borders because you aren't ever going to try to remove the people or even identify the people who have no right to be here. So, you know, it, I, I agree with you. It's an emotional tug thing. And I think a lot of people feel sympathetic because they know people who are illegal aliens or they suspect perhaps the people who, you know, mow their lawns or workers in other places might maybe be illegal and they kind of feel bad because they're nice people. But there's nothing mean about working and establishing policy that says, you know, we're going to be a nation of laws and, and, and the laws have to matter or else they don't. You're right that thankfully not every person who speeds gets pulled over. But at some point, if you just entirely lose the notion of the right to be here or not, it's a free for all. Well, and it's amazing to me that the crime rate keeps going up because we decriminalize almost everything. You know, <laughs> think about this. You know, there are so many things that used to be crimes just twenty years ago that aren't crimes now. And again, if we just simply cannot uh, enforce the rule of law, you end up with anarchy, or you end up with the balkanization of America. And that's another real concern where you have then various uh, uh, barrios where only Spanish is spoken or you have, like we talked about, Muslim training camps or you have no-go situations. And if you want to see what that looks like, go to France and see some of those no-go zones. Go to the Balkans, from which the term balkanization comes from, where you've got so many different ethnicities and various nationalities and languages and you have no social cohesion and that uh, might work oh well in the old world because you have centuries of tradition. But we're a melting pot country, and you can just imagine the decline of America that will come if we have less social cohesion than we have right now. It would fall apart. Amen to that. You know, we only have four minutes left. And so we had a real, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh uses a stack of stuff. I have a lot of papers I bring to the studio, and they're very neatly clipped together. <laughs> and so, but we didn't get to a lot of our topics. But I do want to talk about the Ann Coulter story just very briefly. Because is this coming, is it Thursday, I think, she's supposed to speak? I think Berkeley? it's coming up. Yeah, I don't know exactly, yeah. but I think you might be right. Yeah. Um, and so Ann Coulter, who's, if nothing else, a firebrand, uh, invited to speak at Berkeley. And then, um, you know, a lot of protests and uninvited. And then the school said, essentially, they couldn't guarantee her safety. So then they invited her to speak, you know, to come another time because there was such a protest. And the date they gave her was, it's like spring break. It's not spring break. It has to be reading days leading up to exams. But it's kind of like, yeah, you can come talk when all the students have left. But this is becoming a... Because it isn't just Ann Coulter, it isn't just Berkeley. We and Kirby and I have talked about this. Actually, I was on his show, Point of View, talking about, you know, we, we and we have on this show also talk about Heather McDonald wasn't able to speak at Claremont McKenna. We have Berkeley at the scene of was it, that was Milo Yiannopoulos was Milo Berkeley Yiannopoulos. too, right? Yeah, and of course then we have Charles Murray up there in Vermont, and so you and and there are just a few other examples. And in each particular one of these cases. You have the individuals that call themselves liberal giving some verbal affirmation to free speech. But until you put somebody in jail or until you expel a student, there's no deterrence. And if there's one thing, Debbie, you and I have spent some time talking about, it's the need for deterrence. Whether it's a wall, whether it's a police officer pulling you over for speeding, whether it's deporting individuals that are here illegally that commit a crime, or whether it's individuals who aid and abet the uh, violence that has taken place. And let's recognize that, especially when we talk about Charles Murray and what took place there, 
one of the individuals did go to the hospital. It was a progressive professor who invited him, but she had a concussion, and she wrote about later in New York Times she had to spend a week in a dark room. People are getting hurt. Property is being destroyed, and we're going to have more of it if we don't have deterrence. And in the minute and a half we have left, I want to say this on that point. All of the damage that comes to American campuses is exactly right. What Kirby Anderson just talked about is exactly right. But we're really losing, and I want to close with something to kind of tie back to the way we started the show. What we're really losing is the notion of that it's a hallmark of Western civilization, the ability to have spirited disagreement, to hear each other's views, to go back and forth, recognizing your neighbor doesn't agree with you or your professor doesn't. What has happened on America's campuses is they think, the students think, I don't even have to listen. In fact, I can shut you down. You can't talk because I might get my feelings hurt. And these students then leave campus and go out in life and discover, hey, actually in the workplace, you know, uh, I have to put up with things I don't like. In generally in life, there be politicians I don't like. They've been taught that their tender feelings dictate or uh, command their right to shut everyone down. So I will close with, uh, first of all, th- there was a great article in Truth Revolt. All this will be posted at AmericaChemiTalk.org, posted on our Facebook page. But Truth Revolt had an article about David Horowitz, who spoke recently in Birmingham, Alabama, and said, essentially, we need to stop being nice. This is a street fight. He's right. The willingness of the conservatives to demand college campuses and everywhere else, we get to speak to if we don't keep insisting we will be shut down by what is really the left unwilling to tolerate free speech. So back to my Mike Burgess, uh, which is a wonderful Congressman Mike Burgess's town hall. What you were, I was seeing there are people who didn't think they ever had to listen to the other side. That's not America. This is Debbie George Addis, America Can We Talk. Come back every week. We always talk truth about America. Love talking with you. Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to AmericaCanWeTalk.org. America Can We Talk. Truth about America. America.